Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Today, we've got a very exciting guest for you. We've got Maria Emmerich. And Maria, if you'd just like to introduce yourself to everybody, tell everybody who you are and why you came into this keto carnivore sort of space. Absolutely. Um, well, about, what, 23 years ago, I was twice my size. I wasn't feeling well, and so I went to the family doctor. I didn't even tell my parents I was going. I just went. And at that uh, doctor's visit, I was told I had PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is basically a type two diabetes um, that affects female fertility. I also was given an acid blocker because I had severe acid reflux. Um, I was given an antidepressant because I was a pretty depressed uh, 16 year old. And um, I also had IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. And the doctor told me that it was nothing I was doing wrong. It was just the cards I was dealt in life, okay? Because my grandpa had type two diabetes and you know, all, my dad had acid reflux and it was just, that's my body, right? But when she said I had PCOS and I probably wouldn't have my own kids, it kind of like rocked my world. And just as fate had it, that very same week, I took my dog who was a beautiful golden retriever to the vet because she was losing patches of her hair. And the first question the vet asked me was, what are you feeding her? And I was like, boom, my doctor never asked me that, right? And at the time I worked at a coffee shop where I got to go home with all of the cinnamon rolls and scones and muffins that didn't sell that day. And so in the morning I would make extra cinnamon rolls because I loved them so much. And so obviously I was living off of caffeine, sugar, carbohydrates, and what causes PCOS? Caffeine, sugar, carbohydrates. It wasn't very hard to find out. There wasn't Google back then. Yes, I'm that old, but that was clearly what was causing my issues. And so I changed my dog's diet. Guess what? Her hair grew back and I was like, okay, I'm doing it. And so for me, I love food. I will always love food. I didn't want to live off of chicken breast and broccoli. So I kind of just started creating these recipes without carbohydrates and sugar to be really, really delicious. And I ended up going to school for nutrition and exercise physiology. And now I'm an international best-selling author and a nutritionist who specializes in the ketogenic diet. Um, and I work with people like Halle Berry and Al Roker and Valerie Bertinelli even has my books. Um, but I'm really, I'm really grateful because um, I didn't go into nutrition right after college. I was going to be an adoptive mother and I just was looking forward to being a mom, but my husband lost his job. Our world was rocked. And someone said, Maria, why don't you start writing all your recipes into a book to help raise money for your adoption? And so I did. And people went gangbusters for it. And now the keto diet is very, very popular, um, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time. But uh, in a long story short, that's kind of where it started. <laughs> And that's great. That's a great story. So you took it upon yourself to sort it out for yourself. It wasn't the doctors or nutritionists or anything that aimed you in that direction. You just thought, right, if a vet can say to my dog, what's he on, what's he eating, then maybe I should be saying that to myself. And that's a great thing anybody can just take away from that. That's brilliant. And what we talk about a lot here on the Human Nutrition Lifestyle is nutrient density. And although you, you got into keto and then I've seen some of your books on carnivore, I mean, you got something like 
10, is it 10, 12 books out there? Something like that, 12 cookbooks or something? There's 15, but 15, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> 15. I knew you had a lot anyway. I've seen quite a few of them. And some of them are keto, some of them are carnivore. I didn't quite know um, whether you are, you live a keto lifestyle or whether you live a carnivore lifestyle. Well, you know, I tell people, people are like, so you're carnivore now? You don't believe in the keto diet? And I'm like, no, nobody, nobody said that. Um, when I consult clients, my first question is, what is your why? Why are you, why are you venturing into this keto carnivore lifestyle? Because that's going to determine what type of protocol I'm going to put you on. Because we started the carnivore lifestyle because my husband um, has Lyme disease and he had it for so many years undiagnosed that it's changed him forever. And he deals with a lot of chronic pain. Um, I mean, I used to think Lyme disease was like this overblown disease. Like I didn't really understand it, but let me tell you, it's changed his life. This man never complains and it's terrible. It, it's ruined his life in many ways. Um, but when he gets rid of all of the plant matter that has these anti-nutrients and inflammatory properties, guess what? he feels much, much better. I mean, it's not completely gone. Let's just like, he still has inflammation and some issues, um, but getting rid of the plant matter helps him so much that his why that he eats carnivore is to help with his chronic pain. And when I have people with autoimmune issues um, where you know they have high histamines or all these different food allergies, the carnivore lifestyle is a fantastic diet for them or someone with like chronic uh, kidney stones or something because kidney stones aren't caused by red meat despite what your doctor may tell you what happens is there's something called oxalates which binds to calcium so when you eat these vegetables that have a lot of oxalates that's where you find them they bind to calcium and it builds up in things like your kidneys and eventually these kidney stones are going to happen um, so getting rid of the oxalates is like a huge piece of healing that. Um, am I hundred percent carnivore? No, I'm not. Um, I did do it for writing the books. Um, but I have a 10 and 11 year old also, and I don't have any autoimmune diseases. Thank, you know, thank goodness. Um, I, I, I do, I thrive on a very, like low oxalate. I don't use oxalates, very low carbohydrate, ketogenic diet. I don't, the veg there's the, when people look at their plates, they often think that the kale or the spinach or the blueberries, that's where the nutrients are at. They're not, they're in the steak. The steak blows those out of the water and not just because they have oxalates, but they have many more nutrients. So it's like a super vitamin. And if you eat organ meat, that's a whole nother level of super vitamins. So when I look at my plate, it's very meat forward, it's animal protein forward. And then if I want a little bit of like iceberg lettuce for crunch or onion or garlic for flavor, um, I'm not going hog wild with it, but it, you know, that those like onion and garlic, that adds a lot of flavor to foods where if you're a strict carnivore like Craig, he's not gonna do well with that plant matter. So, um, it's, it's all about what is your, why, if you want to lose weight, carnivore is probably not your jam. Um, I find people do much better with, um, uh, my cleanse plan. Um, but you know, it, it's, I write so many books, they all have different recipes in them because 
we all have different whys and we all have different flavor profiles. And, you know, my kids are 10 and 11 and they eat hundred percent keto. They don't know what sugar is. And so I want to appeal to the kids and the kids at heart, because like I said, you know, I'll always be like a kid at heart eating this way. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, yeah. that's, that's, that's absolutely great. It's, uh, it all comes down to bio-individuality. I've said before, everybody's different. Everybody will have a different goal. Everybody has something to aim for. But I'm pleased you also said that you're kind of animal-based, animal-produce-based, and which leads to nutrient density, which is what I'm all about in, in my line of work as well. And um, because it's animal-based, I believe that that can go across the spectrum as well. Dep whatever We said whatever your goals are, whatever bio-individual you are, but because animal base acts as a brilliant baseline you can just have that as your baseline and build off it whether you lead towards carnivore whether you have your vegetables yeah. in there for a bit of flavor or a bit of fruit anything like that then you do what suits you and, and, and you go in the direction you suit best because i'm a firm believer of looking right into the past into our ancestors and seeing where we came from and there has been a few arguments about it in the past but you can clearly see that our ancestors were lived a, a animal-based lifestyle well to 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 get this point down i um i don't watch a lot of tv but there's a show on the discovery channel called alone and i watch it with my children and in this show called alone you go off alone um on vancouver island it's usually filmed in vancouver island and they're all alone they have a little camera with them and they get to bring like one item like a machete or something and one of the participants was a raw vegan he quickly gave up his diet the same day he got on the island. He knew that if he wanted to survive, he had to eat animal protein because he couldn't waste all day foraging for plants. He needed to fish and eat meat so he can build his hut and find shelter, you know, shelters first, water, and then food but he knew that he could not survive on a raw vegan diet. It's just not possible. And the reason why we got into the whole nutrient charts, if I don't know if you, I could bring my book down, but um, we have all of the charts on where the nutrients are from with you know vegetables versus fruits versus animal protein and organ meat. And the reason why we did that, because my kids don't like vegetables. And we would go to holidays and my mom, bless her heart, kind of a nag. <laughs> and she would say, your kids don't eat any vegetables. And I was like, so I, I don't like them either, right? And so my husband started making charts for Grandma Nancy, not because we were writing a book, but it was so enlightening and enthralling that it had to become a book because these nutrients, I mean, I was, my mind is blown at how unhealthy some of these vegetables are and how the need, one of my favorite things is bioavailability. We have a whole chapter on this whole bioavailability where, you know, oysters are filled with zinc, right? Just massive amounts of zinc. If you eat them by themselves, when you pair them with like uh, black beans or some sort of bean, the bioavailability of zinc goes down 70%. If you add corn tortillas to that, you're getting zero. So if you think, oh, I'm going to eat this, this, and this, 
you're probably not getting as many nutrients as you think if you're doing a lot of the standard American diets like, you know, beans and chips and that type of stuff. That's such an important thing to say as well. It all depends on what you eat with what a lot of people will fill their plate with like you say half of it with vegetables which potentially have anti-nutrients in them and half of it with the animal protein and then like you say they 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 end up cancelling each other out and you're getting not anything that you think you're getting from either or side of your plate there so that is an important point to say but what i want to do is just bring you back a little bit to what you said about your vancouver island i think anybody if they was put in the situation where they had to survive for themselves I heard it somewhere once somebody said um, every single pe- animal piece of meat is edible. All, right? All you have to do is kill it and you can eat it. Go out there yourself and try and find them animal- edible plants. Which ones do you pick? You know, half of them are going to kill you straight off. So the safest option in that situation is to kill an animal and to eat the meat. So I don't know if you are, know this, but I'm a bow hunter. I shoot bow and arrow. And I shot a massive buck this year, massive. And I, the biggest buck I've ever shot. And I was very, very proud to feed my family for months just with that one animal. But my dad told me, don't post that picture online because you are going to get criticized terribly. And I didn't listen to him. I posted it. And I think I lost a thousand followers on Instagram within an hour and people ripped me to shreds. Of course, there were some people, you know, like very impressed, whatever. But most people that commented was like, you know, they thought it was cruel. Someone personally messaged me and said, Maria, you should be like the decent human beings that go to the store and buy their meat. And I was like, are you kidding me? Because (laughs) guess what? You know, what's really shocking. I, I live in Wisconsin most of the time. And in Wisconsin, the deer population, the herd is so huge right now. I had 12 deer tags, 12, which maximum I've had five on a good year. 12 is unheard of. That's how overpopulated the deer is. And I try to explain to people, if you don't have hunters, they're going to die of starvation and be wasted. They're going to get hit by cars and maybe kill you and your children in the car. Like there's something called a limiting factor and a hunter that's going to feed their whole family with that meat. I even fed my dog the heart, like we use all of it. And I don't, I don't have a four wheeler or anything. So we had to drag that deer back to the house. And my boys are like, man, this is a lot of work. I was like, just think of what it was like for our ancestors. It's, It's a big deal. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like you say, those people going to the supermarket and just buying the ribeye steak or just buying the sirloin steak, think about how much of the rest of the animal there there is. So you've just basically killed one animal to get that sirloin steak. Don't you think that's less ethical than actually killing the animal yourself and eating everything it's got to offer from nose to tail, all the organ meats and everything like that? It's such a something, uh, it's a mindset people have to get in their head that... One cow doesn't equal one sirloin steak. <laughs> you know, it's a whole animal. Please get into your heads that you need to make sure that you're 
eating all the organ meats, everything available from the one animal to, to make it worthwhile for killing, killing animals. Nobody wants to kill animals. You know, vegans always have, and vegetarians always have the argument, I don't want to kill animals. Nobody wants to see the death of an animal, but we need these nutrients from these creatures to survive. Everything dies so everything can live. It's the circle of life, isn't it? So another thing that often I get questions about and I argue about all the time is, well, there's creatures and animals that are very similar to us and share our DNA, things like gorillas and orangutans, and they can eat a purely vegetable, vegetarian diet and they can survive. So I'm going to be like the gorilla and orangutan. So what's different from these gorillas and orangutans than there is to us humans? Absolutely. I, we dive right into that. My husband and I in the carnivore cookbook, we show you what a human cecum looks like. And we show you what a koala bear cecum looks like because a koala bear eats plants. Um, you know, a gorilla eats plants. We show you that cecum and then we show you a lion cecum. And guess which cecum the humans looks like? It looks like the lion. Like a lion yeah. Yep. Our cecum is not meant to ferment these vegetables and all of this fiber. And so what happens? We get a lot of gas when we eat them. I don't care who you are. When you eat a lot of broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, that stuff ferments in your gut and causes a lot of gas because we don't have that cecum. We don't have that big cecum to ferment that into a digestible matter. Our bodies are totally different. Yes, we may look we might resemble what a gorilla looks like in some ways, but our intestines do not. And that's why our brain became much, much bigger than theirs. And our stomach became much, much smaller because guess what? We're much smarter than gorillas. That's right. We evolved to make tools and things. That's why we don't need our big canines that people say, well, we haven't got canines because so we don't need to eat meat. Well, that's because we made rocks, we made tools. So we didn't need to evolve to have canines anymore. And I think it's important, you touched on the cecum, I think it's important to say as well that in our digestive tract, our, our small intestine does most of the work. And our small intestine can be something like two times the size of an orangutan or, or a gorilla. And in that small intestine, what, what we need that for is, is animal produce to be able to get and pick the nutrients from the animal produce as well. So like you say, the inside of our body is designed, our biology, our human biology is designed to be a carnivore. It is, it is. And especially when you look at, um, you know, we have so many more um, brain neurotransmitters like serotonin and GABA and acetylcholine, all of the dopamine, you know, when we look at people with depression, a lot of times their diet is very low in animal protein because things like serotonin, guess what? It comes from amino acids. And where do amino acids come from? They come from animal protein. Plants do not have complete am amino acid profiles. So you have to like pair them with a bunch of things that have a bunch of anti-nutrients in them. So um, I even know there's uh, Amber O'Hearn. She is um, she suffers from bipolar disorder, except and she can, she can get off medication when she eats 100% carnivore. But if she has even spices on her steak, then she need, needs to go back on medication. 
<laughs> That's interesting to know. <laughs> um, so carnivore, we often say, is a great reset diet because, like you say, if you've got any underlying things like that, then carnivore will hopefully help you reset, have that baseline, which you can then build on in the future. But another thing that you hear from the vegetable side a lot is, well, I get plenty of fiber in my nutrition. And if you're heading over towards the animal produce or towards the carnivore side, where do you get your fiber from? Perhaps you can enlighten us into what fiber is, what, what sort of types of fiber there is and, and how it works. Well, fiber is not healthy. It's like steel wool on your intestines. And if you think about newborn babies, newborn babies poo all the time. They don't get any fiber. You do not need fiber to go number two. The colon is like a sponge, all right? And what happens is people will start the carnivore or ketogenic diet and they're like, I got constipated. It's not because of the lack of fiber. It's because the lack of sodium. We've been told to stay away from salt because it's bad for blood pressure. Um, it's bad for so many things. Salt is a needed nutrient. You will die without salt. And we've been told to stay away from it. So we don't, when, you, when you're eating keto or carnivore, a healthy keto or carnivore diet, and you're eating meats and eggs, we're lightly salting it, very, very little. And you might not even get a, you know, a half a teaspoon a day you're gonna get constipated. You most likely need about two and a half teaspoons a day. I know some people such as Dave Feldman, a wonderful cholesterol king, he needs five teaspoons a day in order to feel his best. So when you start the carnivore or keto diet, I have something called soul water, S-O-L-E on my blog. It's a free recipe. It helps with chronic constipation. It helps with that low energy when you start the keto or carnivore diet. It helps with low moods, heavy legs walking upstairs. That's all low sodium and low electrolytes. Your colon doesn't need fiber. Fiber becomes a menace and you become addicted to fiber because you've been using it all the time, but it's like steel wool. It's just trying to like irritating that intestinal lining. And if you don't believe me, think about people with I deal with a lot of Crohn's, colitis, diverticulitis, IBS. I had that. Why, what does the doctor tell them when they have Crohn's or colitis or diverticulitis? Stay away from the fiber and eat only the white foods with, that's low in fiber. Well, why don't we just get rid of all of those things <laughs> and eat animal protein and start healing that intestinal lining and everybody that works with me that has Crohn's colitis diverticulitis, they're like, I'm healed, you know, because they got rid of that plant matter that's fermenting in their gut and all the fiber that's causing that steel wool, you know, scratching at their lining. Fiber is not, we all thought it was. I remember in college, they taught fiber was fantastic. It's a great way to feel full, which that's not true. Yeah, exactly. So why wait until we get these particular diseases to then start to cut the fiber out? Let's cut the fiber out um, straight away before we even get to the doctor. That'd be a good idea. And just touching on your salt thing as well, I, I, I have some athletes that I work with and salt for them is very, very imperative if they're dropping down to a kind of our diet. Anybody's listening to this who's doing exercise and wanting to have a strict animal produce nutrition, then you must make sure you get salt. Um, I often recommend electrolytes, like you say, clean electrolytes in drinks all of the time throughout all of the day. 
it's not going to do you any harm. It's going to do you more good than it is harm. So it's, it's very important to get the salt word out there because like you say, people in the past have said, oh, you're not salt, you know, don't put too much salt on there. Don't put too much salt on this. But you need your salt. It's, it's a, a vital micronutrient. And it, well, something I didn't address, like when you're getting rid of the breads, the pastas, the rice, all of those things are filled with sodium. And even a McDonald's milkshake has more sodium in it than their French fry does. Sodium, salt is a flavor enhancer. So it's add to every dessert that you have, every packaged food item has a lot of sodium in it. So when you get rid of all of the foods in a package, you have to be very cognizant of salt in your foods well. And guess what? You'll like your homemade food better if you actually use some more flavor, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't realize, do you? You don't realize if you were to even just go low carb keto, you don't realize how much salt you are taking. You're not just taking the carbohydrates out of your diet, you're taking all the sodium out there as well. So it's a good idea to supplement with that. Or like you say, make sure you put it on all of your meals and get plenty that way. Um, so if fiber is interacting with our microbiome then, and what other things could interact with our microbiome that could do perhaps a better job than fiber? Um, a lot of people think that you need fiber for a prebiotic, you know, for your microbiome, um, collagen or like the tissues of meat is actually a much better, uh, form of prebiotic. So when you're eating your meat, be proud to chew on the chicken wing, like the whole thing, you know, let your kids chew on that. Um, if you're, I love ribs, barbecue ribs. Um, I smoke them all the time. Smoked ribs are my favorite. Chew on the actual riblet and get some of that connective tissue in or drinking bone broth. Bone broth is a great form of collagen. Um, you know, those types of things are a much, I, I did a whole post about like prebiotics and the animal parts, if you actually eat nose to tail, you're gonna get much better uh, prebiotics than the fiber menace will ever be. So could you potentially change your microbiome then? Could what, what actually is a healthy microbiome? Could you change it from something perhaps unhealthy to healthy? What's unhealthy in the first place? And then what could potentially become a healthy microbiome? And how would the steps go to from unhealthy to healthy? I know that's a bit of a long question there. <laughs> well, we have these great charts in the carnivore cookbook. Um, it's not just a cookbook. I, I hate saying that because writing recipes and editing recipes are very hard and testing them. Um, but the whole half of it in the beginning is information like this. So we show you what um, a typical standard American microbiome looks like. And then within only like days of changing from a standard American diet to a carnivore diet, the microbiome shifts completely. But is it a bad thing? No, it's not because guess what? I'm never gonna start eating gluten again. I'm not gonna eat that anymore. I'm not gonna eat those harmful grains anymore. So the fact that I no longer have the microbiome to digest that, I'm completely fine with because I have a microbiome that's gonna take care of the healthy foods, the healthy animal proteins that I'm now eating. So um, is that a harmful thing? No, it's actually a good thing, you know? Yeah, so uh, every diet can adapt to, your microbiome can adapt to your diet, let's say that. Your microbiome can adapt to your, 
your nutrition, but whether that's healthy or not comes down to the actual individual and the actual individual nutrition. But there's right. nothing wrong with having a healthy microbiome and, and making it more healthy by introducing these things, like you say, like collagen and all the gristly little grindy bits on animals, all the, all the little in, in, in the tendons and all those little things that are giving you microbiome things to think about, things to do, things yeah. to work with. So they're perhaps making it more healthy. It's a very big subject, the microbiome. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, and you know, that is not my expertise. Um, but I do know that um, the first food that I fed my baby um, was bone broth. And he begged for it. After breast milk, the first thing he had was bone broth. And to this day, my children's palates are much different than what you see in most children. Um, you know, they, they prefer having a savory item versus a sweet item every, any day. You know? Is that what your children are then? Are they, would you um, describe them as being keto or animal-based oh, keto? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, they, eat, they eat things right from my cookbook. They love my Mama Maria's meatballs. And yeah, they, you know, I have one son that can't do dairy. So I have a lot of dairy-free books because we, we talk bad about gluten a lot in the keto community space, but we don't address dairy a lot. And a lot of people live off of dairy. However, most people are allergic to dairy and they don't want to admit it. You know, they might've tried the keto diet and they're like, oh, I, I didn't do well. I gained weight. I got constipated. Well, dairy is very constipating too. Um, and it's, it's not, I, I would focus on more animal protein than I would animal fats like the, um, the dairy is. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of research on dairy and I think it comes down a bit to your ancestral past as well. Like us in Europe, uh, European DNA seems to be able to work with dairy quite well. Uh, our bodies don't seem to suffer as much as perhaps over where you are in America. The Americans seem to have more trouble with dairy over that way on. My boys are from Ethiopia, which are known to not have dairy. Yeah, well, there you go. That's something. Uh, it, there has been a lot of, uh, to say that more Northern Europeans grew up on farms and, and, and more ancestral that way. So perhaps they had dairy in their diet a lot longer and, and a lot longer into adulthood because everybody as children obviously has it there. So. But it could also be the way that the US is making their dairy with hormone filled animals and you know non organic animals and the fat is where the toxins are stored if you are buying one thing organic i really wouldn't be that concerned with beef i would be more concerned with the dairy that you buy being organic for sure yeah yeah that's a, it's a, a good thing to say but um there's something that we, we you touched a little bit on bioavailability earlier and there's something i read and I think it was on your Instagram that you said, and it really drew me in. I wondered if we could talk about it a little bit more. It was, I'll just quote you now. It said, uh, you are not what you eat. You are what you absorb. And that obviously leads to our microbiome and how we digest things and the bioavailability of food. Now, talking about bioavailability, we said a little bit earlier, but bioavailability from animal produce and bioavailability from vegetable produce is totally different. And I wonder if you could dive into a little bit about how bioavailable these animal produce are versus how bioavailable these plant produce are. Well, a lot of it comes down to, first of all, I want to talk about um, your stomach 
and the health of that, like not just the microbiome, but how much hydrochloric acid you produce. So like a healthy thyroid produces something called hydrochloric acid. Um, a lot of times people will go on acid blockers, like the doctor gave me, I never took them. Um, but my dad, he took acid blockers for years, maybe a decade. And I tried to explain to him that you're not, you're not too high in acid, you're too low in acid, and that's causing the acid reflux. And you're not absorbing the nutrients that you need that hydrochloric acid helps you to do. And so, you know, it's a, it's a process to get off acid blockers and slowly start adding in hydrochloric acid because um, you'll have a resurgence happen. But that's a big part of what I was getting at when I posted that you aren't what you eat, you are what you absorb, because a lot of times you could be eating this nutrient dense animal protein, but if you don't have enough hydrochloric acid, it's probably going right through you. And you can kind of see that in your stools. How are your stools? Well, um, and then, oh, so then going from animal protein, your question, animal protein versus vegetables, it's all about like the bioavailability is all, all about what has the nutrients and the anti-nutrients. So you have, you know, the animal protein filled with all these nutrients without any anti-nutrients. There's no oxalates in there and all of these other anti-nutrients that we don't want. And then you have the plant matter, like you think spinach, everybody thinks spinach is so great. It's so high in calcium, but guess what? It also has, it has a lot of oxalates. So all of this calcium in the spinach, it gets pulled out by the oxalates and pulled into things like your kidneys rather than in your bones and in your teeth. That's where you want it to be is in the bones, in the teeth. You don't want it building up in the kidneys. So despite eating a lot of things with calcium in it, if you're eating a lot of things with oxalates too, the calcium's not getting into the bones where you want it to be. And that's where like vitamin K2 is an essential nutrient to get vitamin or to get calcium into the bones where you want it to be. Um, seeing people reverse bone loss and osteopenia um, with the addition of K2, where's K2 found in? Organ meat. Who eats organ meat? Not a lot of people these days because like even my kids, they love like, um, we get organic hot dogs without any sugar in it or bologna from US wellness meats. And it's just, you know, it's like organ meat and people are like, or like we'll eat Braunschweiger, homemade Braunschweiger and people are like, oh, gross. You know, that's just a bunch of bits and pieces of the animals. Like, yeah, that's the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And immediately when I saw that post and, and the thing that went through my head was a lot of people say, like you just said, oh, well, I get plenty of calcium from this and I get magnesium from that. A lot of people nowadays are supplementing and they'll get the supplements and they'll say, oh, well, I've had 10,000 milligrams of magnesium today. I've had 10,000 milligrams of calcium, whatever. What they don't realize is just because you're putting it in your body doesn't mean you're getting it. And well, like you say, there's a lot of fat soluble vitamins out there as well that need the, the fats like the K2 and things that need to transport it around your body and get it to the places where it needs to be. Absolutely. Calcium supplements are very poorly absorbed and usually causes calcification of the arteries. It's not recommended to do calcium supplements. And your bones, we used to think it was a four to one ratio calcium to magnesium. And we now know that it's switched magnesium to calcium. And I'm going to say, we used to find magnesium in our water supply. 
Okay. And I'm lucky enough to live in an area where we have a, our own well, but even our well water that we test is very depleted. Like, just like farmers need to rotate their crops because they know that the soil gets depleted of certain minerals um, with a certain crop. Our, our soil is so depleted of magnesium and that was our main source of magnesium. Halibut has some, but halibut's a pricey fish. I'm not eating that very often. Um, <laughs> almonds have it, but almonds have a lot of oxalates. So where do we get calcium? I do recommend, just like you supplement with like uh, electrolytes, with a, a quality absorbable magnesium glycinate. Most people buy, go to the big box store and they'll buy magnesium oxide, magnesium citrate. That's not absorbed. You're just gonna get diarrhea. Um, you know, there's, so Epsom salts, that's a great way to get magnesium, but I, I just did, did want to touch on, I think some cases supplements are okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some cases are fine. And as long as you check the ingredients, which I always say about everything, about every food, every supplement as well, check the ingredients, oh, make yeah. sure that what's in there is actually in there. What you think you're getting is, oh, is what you think you're getting. Yeah. True. So let me just change the subject then a little bit now and dive into something I've wanted to talk to you about, and that is oxidative priorities. A lot of people don't actually realize what's happening in their body, especially when they go into keto, they first start getting into it and they think, oh, well, what's happening within my body? What's burning? What, what are the fuels that I can use? What are the fuels I can utilize? So tell us a bit about what oxidative priorities are and how they are used. Well, I, I wrote about oxidative priority and that's, uh, I've done a lot of speeches about it around the world because a lot of people start the keto diet because let's be honest, 99% of the people, they want to lose weight. That's why they try the keto diet. That's why they try any diet. Um, keto is great for so many things. I have, uh, patients with cancer. I have, uh, kids with epilepsy. It's great for those things. Their protocol is different, but this whole oxidative priority is to teach people how you use macronutrients in order to lose weight efficiently. And so I dive down into the different macronutrients and I start with alcohol because alcohol is the first thing. If you eat, uh, if you drink a glass of wine with a steak, a baked potato and some butter on the baked potato, I want you to know how you're going to use those different fuels in the processes that you, you know, eat them. The first thing it's going to burn is the red wine because alcohol is completely toxic and there's no storage site. Um, it's not, I mean, I don't care what article you read that it's a heart healthy, you know, red wine, you know, polyphenols, that's just a bunch of crap because people want to drink it. It's not healthy. That's the first thing you burn and it's going to hold on to everything else to prove this point. When I work with alcoholics and they get their A1C tested, their A1C usually looks fantastic. Even if they just eat a bunch of sugar all day long with their alcohol, it's because they're prioritizing burning the alcohol. They're not prioritizing burning the carbohydrates. So that's what it burns first. The next thing is exogenous ketones. And the reason why I put that on there is because they're a waste of money. The only reason I would ever recommend them is if you're some sort of athlete that wants to win a hundred mile race, it could give you an edge, but then again, it's cheating. Um, or someone with epilepsy and wants to control it better. Um, I wouldn't do it for cancer, even though that's why they research a lot because 
I don't think we know enough about having too high of ketones and high glucose. Cancer is very smart. It could start burning ketones. So if you have a lot of ketones present, maybe it's going to start living off of ketones because we know that it likes to live off of excess sugar and carbohydrates, but I don't think we know enough. So um, I just wanted people to know, don't waste your money on that, waste your money on good quality food, right? So skip the alcohol, skip the exogenous ketones, and then you're going to burn uh, carbohydrates next. And carbohydrates, um, you know, whether it be in a cracker, a baked potato, a sweet potato, that's what it's going to burn next. And um, there's no essential carbohydrates. So essentially, you could put those aside. However, there are essential amino acids, and that's next. That's protein. You need protein for hair. And that's what makes me sad is a lot of women will start the keto diet and they'll live off of fat bombs and bulletproof coffee and they'll start losing their hair. Well, your hair follicles need amino acids and that comes from animal protein. Um, animal or um, carbohydrates, they have a thermic effect of food of about 3%. It's not very much. So when you eat 100 grams of or 100 calories of carbohydrates, you net about 97. When you eat protein, that has up to a 35% thermic effect of food. So when you eat 100 calories of protein, your, your metabolism works to burn that off. So you're really only netting about 65, 75. It depends on what kind of protein it is. And then, and that's going to primarily build muscle, build hair, like protein is essential. You have to hit your protein goal. And then fat is a lever. Fat is the last macronutrients I talk about because if you want to lose weight, let's turn the fat dial down so you can use body fat to make ketones. However, if you're just eating a bunch of butter in your coffee, which a lot of people are, you're going to use that butter for the, your ketones rather than your body fat. And fat, the thermic effect of food is very low. So when you eat 100 calories, you basically net that much anyway. And then you get into burning your body fat for fuel. And when I bring up calories, I'm not saying that it's calories in, calories out. I do not believe that. But to say that calories don't matter is ignorance. It's more complicated than calories in, calories out. But it doesn't mean that you could eat 5,000 calories of fat and not gain weight just because you're in ketosis. But this is why I bang my head against the wall with the popularity of keto, because there's people out there that are very influential that will tell you that calories don't matter. Eat the stick of butter on your steak. To me, I think that's stupid. Yeah, I'm totally on the same lines as you. I, I think uh, calories in, calories out is something that's gone by the wayside. We don't need to worry about that anymore. But calories do matter when it comes down to your macros and you have to match them up with your macros. They have to run alongside each other quite happily. And as you described then, you can see that it takes a long time for your body to be able to work to get to those fat stores that you've got. So if you're constantly topping your body up with fat, then you can see you're not going to get to your fat stores. So if your main goal is to lose weight through a, a keto diet, uh, then you need to make sure that you're taking those oxidative priorities so that you can get to your fat stores to be able to burn them. 
And, you know, people that are beginners, um, when you said macros, a lot of people are like, macros, what are macros? I do, want, I do want everybody to know we spent copious amounts of money on a free macro calculator for everybody to use. And um, do you mind if I say where it's at? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, it's my, my website is mariamindbodyhealth.com. And right at the top, you can search, it says free calculator. And the free calculator, you plug in your lean mass, which is your muscle mass. And if you don't know it, I have a little bit of calculation that can help you figure that out. Um, and that's going to give you your personal macros because Matthew and I are going to have different macros. Um, and getting those right is a huge part of being successful. And depending on your goals, you know, if you're an athlete and you want to, you know, thrive as an athlete, if you're breastfeeding, whatever it is, if you're male, female, all of that is worked into that calculator. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. And I'm pleased you told us about that. I urge everybody to go and have a look because, you know, like I say, everybody is different and everybody has individual goals. I can't stress that enough. It's, it's the reason why I started these podcasts because people started asking questions. Do I have to do the same as you? Do I have to do the same as my neighbor? He's doing this. Can I do this? Well, it's like, well, what's your goal? What do you want to achieve from this? And then we can have all of these things that we talk about, put them in a bucket and see where that comes out to you. See which ones we need to pull out, which ones we need to leave in there. So it's great that you've uh, told us about that. Hopefully we can uh, get people to go and have a look. Um, so we talked about all exercise pr uh, priorities, but there's one thing that I wanted to say and, and I want, wanted you to talk to us about a bit on. And sometimes I hear people on about gluconeogenesis and gluconeogenesis is something that perhaps people say, well, I'm not going to eat a lot of protein because that can protein can change into glucose. Therefore, what's the point in me eating loads of protein? Because through this gluconeogenesis it can change into sugar anyway but tell us why they shouldn't be scared of gluconeogenesis and they should prioritize protein in their diets i always joke uh chicken is never going to turn into chocolate cake first of all um, most people are under eating protein they're not overeating protein um, and it's a demand driven process protein is a very expensive fuel your body does not want to burn protein for fuel. It's very expensive to do that. And this whole idea that protein is going to turn into sugar, it's not. If you see elevated blood sugars in the morning because you prioritized protein the day before, how much did they go up? How much did they go up? Is it like, is your glucose like 110? Like that's not a big deal. It's not like 300, like you ate a bunch of carbohydrates, a little bit, that's not a big deal. That is going to help build muscle protein synthesis. And what's interesting is a lot of times people will add in protein without moderating the fat a little bit, okay? And so it's not about too much protein turning into sugar, it's about too much fuel that you put in the day before. If you dial down that fat as you increase the protein, not only will you see better benefits, you're going to see the, your morning blood sugars go down. Um, it's not about too much protein. It's probably too much fuel. And also, you know, exercise increases blood sugar. Should we stop exercising? 
No, no, definitely not. No. You know, and we also know that coffee increases blood sugar, but nobody wants to give up their coffee except for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, we blame these things because we think it's going to be an easier solution. But, you know, it, it's not it's not a bad thing. If you're seeing a bit of elevated blood sugar, I would say try to lower the fat um, in the previous day, depending on your goal, because like I'm an athlete and I'm not trying to lose weight. So fat is my fuel because protein isn't a good fuel source. It's great for building muscle, building hair. But if you are trying to win a marathon, like Zach Bitter is one of the, I mean, is a world record breaking for a hundred mile races. He needs more fat for fuel than someone that's trying to lose weight. So this is why getting back to the original question, what is your why is very important. Yeah, definitely. You have to make sure you know what you're doing it for and why you're doing it. And I've heard these phrases banded about like saying, oh, you need one pound per every kilo of body weight, or you need two pounds of protein per every kilo of body weight, or you need to match your body mass with your protein. What would you say on those particular scales is, is correct? Going by your personal body weight is ridiculous because if you want to shrink your body weight, don't go by what your current body weight is. Go by your lean mass. You want to do 0.8 times your lean mass in grams of protein when I'm talking about pounds, um, not kilograms, sorry. Uh, but I do have a kilogram uh, calculator on the website. I'm just not super familiar with kilograms. Um, but you want about 0.8 times your lean mass in pounds um, in grams of protein. Um, the reason why you want to do the lean mass is because that's what you want to maintain. You don't want to lose lean mass, but you want to lose fat mass. And that's why you want to focus on your lean mass. And a lot of people say, oh, I lost 50 pounds. Do I have to redo your macros? No, not if you ate properly and you didn't lose any lean mass because your lean mass is still the same. But if you did a lot of fat bombs or didn't hit your protein goal, you probably did lose lean mass. Um, so that's why like on the scale, if you do fat bombs and stuff, you may see that on your scale, but you don't want to lose lean mass. Lean mass is very metabolically active. It keeps you strong. It keeps you active. Um, I want to be strong as I age. I don't want to be weak. Yeah, I always say to people, try and match your lean mass with your protein. So I, I would be telling people a little bit higher than the 0.8, simply because I always find that people don't get enough. So if you're right, telling right. tell 0.8 or, or even lower, because some people, I have heard some people say, oh, 0.6 or even 0.75. And then you say, well, okay, but then they, they, if, you, if you tell them more, that they'll often come back for less anyway. Exactly. 0.8 is a minimum. You yeah, can yeah. go higher. Yeah. You know, like that is the absolute minimum. Um, and everybody's always like, how do I get more protein without more fat? And it's like the animal proteins, like, you know, choose chicken breasts instead of chicken thighs or like uh, tenderloin, um, filet mignon, a skirt steak instead of a ribeye or like prioritizing that protein if you're, if you're not hitting your protein goal. Um, there's a lot of great ways to get pure protein without adding any fat. Yeah, I often tell my athletes as well to, to go even more, even more up to like 1.2, you know, because... Yeah. They, they're using a lot more, yeah, they're burning yeah. it. So yeah, 
But you talk a little, you said a little bit then about um, the animal protein. So how does the animal protein differ to the vegetable protein that we see nowadays? There's all this out there, you know, this has got plant protein in it. That's plant protein. You need to buy this because it's plant protein. Why do we need to steer towards the animal protein and not the plant protein? Well, there's a few different reasons. For one, plant proteins don't have a complete amino acid profile. Um, and what I mean by that is you want, you need complete amino acid profiles to build lean mass, to build hair, to help with your thyroid. And that's why you plant, you, the, you know, vegans know to match like black beans with, uh, you know, whatever it is, because the black beans have leucine and all of these, but they don't have L-carnitine and things like that. So they have to plant, you know, pair them together in order to make a complete protein but they're still lacking in how readily available and digestible they are. Like whey protein, I don't really recommend that for weight loss because it's so quickly absorbed into the bloodstream that it's a, it can cause a blood sugar spike, which is fine for an athlete trying to build muscle. You know, when I work with bodybuilders, yes, that's fine before a workout, but with someone that wants to lean down and has metabolic issues, that's primarily who I work with, whey protein is not recommended because it's too quickly absorbed. Um, something like an egg protein or beef protein, they all have different times they take in your bloodstream to signal mTOR. And mTOR is that muscle building synthesis. So um, like plants, like soy protein doesn't even signal that. So even though you got you know, a hundred grams of soy protein. First of all, it's very estrogenic, which causes breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, you know, thyroid cancer. Don't eat soy. Soy is terrible for you. Um, it's never going to signal mTOR like beef, chicken, um, you know, egg protein, that type of stuff would. Yeah, the reason animal produce signals mTOR is because it's complete. Like you say, it's got all the amino acids in there. And unless you are a very clued up vegan or a very clued up vegetarian, you're not going to know which particular proteins are in certain things. Like, like you say, you need to marry up your casein and your lysine and all that on one particular plate. It's going to be a big plate because you're going to have to get all that in. And then are you going to be able to eat it all? And is it all bio available? We don't know. So the easier option to be is animal protein you were sure getting complete it amino acids better there. It and it tastes better. better yeah that's right yeah and uh, that's brilliant marie i realized that we've been talking for nearly an hour now so i don't want to take up all your time and i think we've covered plenty of subjects there for people to dive into i oh, know I'm you've already, yeah i know you've already mentioned your uh, website which is great i did have a, a look on there and there's just absolutely anything you want there's all sorts of different kind of subjects if there's a particular subject our listeners want to dive into i urge them to go and look at your website it's mariamindbodyhealth.com also can we follow you on social media on instagram and i'm on instagram at maria emmerich uh, all one word and if you watch i don't know when this will air but i will be doing um a video with Halle Berry on January 25th. So check that out on her Instagram wall for sure. Otherwise on Facebook, I have um, a group called Keto Adapted um, that you can join and check out on there too. That's great. I'm on Twitter and stuff, but I'm not super active. Brilliant. I mean, we all need to go follow Halle Berry then as well, don't we? And see what's going yeah. on there. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today, Maria. That's been absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. It was fun.
There, that was a great chat with Maria Emmerich there. And to find out more about Maria, like she says, go to her website or follow her on Instagram. She has plenty of cookbooks out there if that's something you'd want to take a look at. But I just want to iron out some finer details that I've been getting asked over the past few weeks. And as you can hear from a lot of our recent episodes, there is no doubt and it is becoming very clear that animal protein plays a vital role in our nutrition at every level. And to prioritise this can only serve our bodies well, whether it is for longevity goals, for performance goals, or just to live an optimum lifestyle. Now, I really want you all to understand that every single one of you out there is different and you all have different goals. I try to throw a big blanket across all of nutrition. And as you know, I focus on nutrient density. I do not go into any camp like keto or carnivore or paleo or vegan, vegetarian, anything like that. So as we begin to venture into spring and summer in the Northern Hemisphere, I am fully aware that the athletes of you, the ones, the athletes that are listening, will be taking on training plans and aiming for specific goals and specific races. So you really need to make sure you fuel your workouts properly. And I say this because I'm starting to get a lot of people referring to me as the low-carb guy, the guy who doesn't take carbohydrates. And they even said, he's the one who does the keto. And it's not me. I'm not that guy. I'm the nutrient-dense guy, if you want to call me any guy. However, I myself will be training, and I will be taking up a more intense training program come spring, summertime. So I will be increasing my carbohydrate intake to support my training especially when it becomes more intense. And it is very important never to underfuel your workouts. I've spoken to low-carb athletes who all advocate carbohydrates for higher intensity or a lower-carb nutrition for lower intensity. It's got to match your nutrition and your exercise. have got to live alongside each other. But again, when I say higher carb, I just mean something in the lines between 100 and 200 grams of carbs per day to support whatever training I'm doing. If I'm doing more, I'll have more. If I'm doing less, I'll have less. And that is not the 400 to 500 grams, which most people, even just everyday people, not athletes, are actually having in their nutrition without even realizing. Having that big fat engine and being able to run on fat stars as fuel is optimal for anybody, especially for an athlete. So it is crucial that you are able to do this and nutrition can help alongside your training program. But it is essential to know when and how your body uses carbohydrates and fat efficiently. So if you're designing your own nutrition, you must always match your training, especially the intensity, to whatever your daily needs are. Now, all that being said, I have mostly been working with people who are not athletes and do not 
vary in training or exercise intensities, therefore it becomes much more straightforward for you kind of people. Sure, I'm always an advocate of exercise of any kind, but really focusing on that nutrition, in particular your ability to be a fat burner, becomes your main priority without exercise. And here comes my exact premise of making sure that your nutrition is nutrient-dense packed, full of animal proteins, which in turn leads to a lower carbohydrate nutrition. And that same baseline can go for those busy athletes as well, but they must add in the real food carbohydrates, things like nuts and fruits and vegetables, sourdough bread, perhaps white rice, all sorts of kind of things. Carbohydrates can be added in to their individual needs. But like I say, to an everyday daily dog walker, carbohydrates are very much non-essential and should feature less within an overall nutrition. Perhaps not not at all, but very little. And again, prioritise that animal protein, animal fats and nutrient density. However, there is one thing that goes across the board for everybody, athletes, everyday people, everybody that I will speak to, come in contact with. The one rule that I want to get across there is you should eat very, very, very much less processed food in your diet as you do of now. And as a consequence, you will limit those harmful omega-6 oils that come along with it. Omega-6 oils, I've spoke a lot about on my podcast, and they feature highly, they are highly available in those processed foods. So if you're just eating real foods and cutting those out of your diet, then you are already on your way to optimum health. And like I said in the podcast with Dr. Tommy, omega-6 linoleic acid will feature in anybody's nutrition, but it's all about limiting it and getting it from better sources like organic animal fats, things like that. So I hope that clears a few things up for you. And I am hoping to put a podcast out there purely on optimal sports performance. And you could probably gather by now that if you're looking for pure optimal sports performance, not just simply optimal nutrition, then carbohydrates are going to feature a lot, lot more. So it'd be interesting to know that side of it. Hopefully we can bring that podcast to you very soon. Up to now, all the guests I have got for you and get for you, they all have their own ways of doing things, their own beliefs. Some are more on the keto side, some more on the paleo side. I do try to find people who like nutrient density, try not to focus in a particular camp of carnivore or anything like that, just go for the nutrient density. I really do believe that carnivore, keto, paleo are all good baseline reset diets if that's what you need, if you need to be battling a certain condition or you really want just a reset, start again, then they are perfect. But for a lifestyle, they are super hard to follow and you're bound to fall into pitfalls along the way. So that's why I focus on nutrient density 
and eventually making sure that you have all macros covered for whatever goals you go down. I'll continue to try and make sense of it all for you. And until then, see you next time.